Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of TARDIS Rubbish, the sister podcast to Trash Compactor, a Star Wars podcast, and cousin podcast to The Secret Origins of Mint Condition. I'm your host, Josh. Doctor Who is back with the Star Beasts, and joining me to talk about our reactions to the first new Doctor Who in over a year. Some might say in over five years, but I'm not necessarily one of them. That was mean-spirited. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut that out. I am joined by the host of The Secret Origins of Mint Condition, James... Hello. And frequent contributor to both Trash Compactor and Secret Origins of Mint Condition, returning longtime esteemed guest, John. Delighted to be here. Uh, before we get to the Star Beast, this is a new podcast, a Doctor Who podcast. And just to set a baseline, I want to start out by asking both of you, who is your doctor? You know, it's, it's, it's tough. I'm going to say because I, I last year I rewatched all the Christmas specials as my Christmas time thing for that year and i'm gonna say peter capaldi's my favorite doctor the 12th doctor i really i really love him david Tennant's a real close second but i don't i don't know i really love uh, peter capaldi uh, there's lots of reasons that maybe that's another episode i don't know how deep i'll go into it but i'm gonna say the 12th doctor is my is my favorite doctor you won't get any arguments from me that's a very that's a solid choice john what about you who's who's your doctor you know, James, I love that because I think I think Peter Capaldi gets uh, underrated sometimes for what was really an amazing run that got stretched out over a couple of years. Um, and I, I really appreciated him and really enjoyed him, especially his speeches. But yes. for me, uh, it really is David Tennant, the Tennant Doctor. It's just there's there's just something that um, uh, it was a time in my life when I was you know just really getting into Doctor Who. Love Chris Frackleston. But when David Tennant came on board, it was that first episode of, hmm, what is this? I'm a little bit, I'm a little skeptical because I just lost my first Doctor. And then he won me over. And uh, uh, I just enjoyed his seasons so much in that particularly, you know, goofy, slightly goofy, but really earnest portrayal with a gravity at the same time. And that was a combination that's really, I thought was really hard to pull off. Uh, and then you realize every Doctor has managed to do it in their own way. But yeah, David Tennant, David Tennant's my Doctor. Again, choice I can't argue with. This is a tough question. This is a hard question. I was thinking about it earlier, and I got to go with a very basic answer, but I got to go with Tom Baker. He just is the doctor. He wasn't playing a character like that really is him. He is a Time Lord from Gallifrey and the Constellation of Cristerberus. And I mean, that's just who he is. That's why I think if we're going new series, if we're going to split it from classic series doctor to new series doctor i think for me it's really matt smith is my doctor for the same reason he doesn't seem like he's yeah. playing a part he seems like that's just who he is yeah i would i would agree with that i mean also tom baker's a great choice too like tom baker's and i probably in my top three he's probably in the top three i mean it, it would be compaldi tenant and tom baker because i grew up with tom baker tom baker's the first doctor i ever knew mm -hmm. and he sort of set like it's a great choice because he got I, he, he kind of set the i guess the tone for the doctor maybe a little bit yeah i mean like the first three doctors are very each one is a different flavor of the character and the fourth one is his own flavor, but it's sort of it's sort of a blending of the space hobo and the patrician and the action hero all the doctors after Tom Baker are kind of variations on that. For me, Tom Baker is the definitive doctor. He really did start a trend on his own, of, uh, you know, or started the trend because you read the first pre previous three doctors uh, sort of fit the mold of the grumpy old man. You know, who was who was you know initially started to be supposed to be a science teacher in the original concept. They were just like you know dealing with us silly humans and, and instructing their young companions, and there was a charm to them. But yeah, you you didn't get that unique flair and just something completely different and something that felt i don't know if alien is quite the right word but it's close certainly certainly aloof uh, yeah yeah you know one of my favorite tom baker lines which for me is just an encapsulation of the doctor and his relation to humanity in so many ways is um he has that line in city of death you should know you're a beautiful woman probably probably <laughs> it just really encapsulates the doctor's relationship to humanity and their understanding of humanity it's like they get it and they can do it but they're sort of off to the side like they are not of it anyway the Star Beast. I made a mean-spirited joke that this is the first new Doctor Who in five years. That's not a comment on quality. Uh, there was something about the Star Beast to me that felt like it was really in conversation with previous seasons of the show in a way that the Chibnall years, to me, kind of felt 
disconnected from the 10 years of the show that had happened prior. But we can get into that. Just first off, overall thoughts on the Star Beast. James. I thought it was a, a good, um, I mean, this is sort of like a reboot, reboot, you know, which I'm, I'm Disney is being on Disney plus. This is sort of like a relaunch of the series again. And I thought it was a good entry point. Um, you have, you know, as we just talked about David Tennant, who's a lot of people's favorite doctor. Uh, you have uh, Catherine Tate, um, another one of the doctor's favorite companions. And I thought it was like, um, sort of just jumping back into the Russell T Davies era. Yeah, you know, like from the get go. I mean, they have a little bit more of a budget and, uh, you know, David Tennant's a little older, but they've they kind of figured that out with the regeneration and the time. Uh, and overall, I really I really enjoyed it. I you know, it's it's some of like Russell T. Davies, you know, just go back to like the Pierre Compaldi, uh, Stephen Moffat era. There was my criticism. I was like, I kind of lacked a little bit of the childlike quality. Like, you know, where Russell T. Davis seems to always keep there's, you know, there could be kids watching this and enjoying this. So there's a little bit of a, of a child, you know, some of it, I wouldn't say it's made for kids, but there's a childlike quality in the way he tells storytelling with Doctor Who, whereas Peter Cabaldi doesn't, his stories don't always lend themselves to that. And so you got to see all of that in this uh, first special. And I, I enjoyed it all the way. I mean, there's there's quirky things going on. Um, and some of the stuff I'm like, what I think of it does, it, does it fit? And I'm like, maybe some of it is not meant for solely me as the viewer. It could be meant for a wide variety of viewers who are engaging with some of the choices that he made different than I am. So so overall, I, I really loved it. I can jump right off that. Um, uh, I was thinking about it after I after I, I watched it last night, and I said, "Yeah, this this had the feel of the earliest parts of the uh, uh, you know Russell Davies run." You know, the, it, and, and, and what I was thinking about, I said, well, what, what is it that set it apart? And, and it was that it was, wow, there, there's a bit of a childlike feel to it. It's that Doctor Who is, we forget, was originally aimed almost entirely at children. Um, it matured into a show that was broad, and that, but that somehow wanted to thread that needle of being accessible to children, appealing, to, but also appealing to every other age group watching it. Uh, and I think that was also the magic of Doctor Who throughout the years and why it stayed with people and they kept on watching as they got older. Uh, a lot of kids shows you don't stick with. Um, so when it was rebooted, he captured a lot of that. Um, and it over the years, it got more mature in, in different ways, had a very mature adult spinoff in Torchwood. Um, but they always kept that, yeah, kids are going to be watching this. Let's make it both accessible, have some of the humor in it, but it's like a good Pixar movie where there are a lot of things that will go over the heads of a kid, you know, that only an adult will get. So that it is a piece of work that is, you know, good for everybody, broad and deserves credit on all those different levels. And that's this episode had. So I'm watching it and I felt sort of that sense of like it, it was comfortable, like slipping into an old pair of shoes. I was like, yeah, this this feels very much like. Uh, the Who of 2005, 2011, 12, you know, that, that, that sort of vibe. Um, but it was also fun. It was a little bit goofy, a little bit scary, a little bit, uh, oh, like, what are they going to do? Uh, and importantly, it was so heartfelt without being saccharine. You know, yeah. um, another tough balance to pull off. And, you know, and we all know, okay, seeing Donna Noble, seeing Catherine Day, you know, inhabit that character again, no matter what was going to be an experience that we were going to love. I don't, I don't think that could have been ruined in and of itself, but that surpassed expectations for me. I was like, oh my God, she's back. And she's everything I remember and everything I just used to, you know, why, why I, w I would say if the question were, who's your favorite companion? For me, it's Donna Noble because that relationship, both on the personal level and the comedic uh, interactions yeah. they had in being an amazing you know comedian to begin with that just made me you know smile for so much of the episode i mean there's also something about donna noble that i think is important to remember she was the first of the david Tennant companions that wasn't in love with the doctor yeah yeah and i think that dynamic was really refreshing and kind of allowed her to be a self-identification character that the other companions rose and martha had not had the opportunity to be because they were so gaga in love with the doctor. Uh, she was a little bit older than Rose and Martha. She was in middle age. And so she was kind of her own person already. And she would challenge the doctor. And that certainly showed up in this before and after she got her, uh, her memory restored. Um, and, you know, both of you said something pretty interesting about, you know, what if there are kids watching and who, 
the audience for Doctor Who is. Like something really interesting about Doctor Who, which I think is part of the reason why there's not really an American equivalent. It's sort of its own unique thing is that it's it's really a product of a time when the remit of the BBC was to be the public broadcaster for the whole country, for the whole nation of Great Britain. And Doctor Who wasn't just a kid's show. It was supposed to be a show for the whole family. The idea was it's, mm. it's the Saturday tea time slot. The whole family is watching TV. So there has to be something in it for the kids, for the moms and the dads and the grandparents. And I don't think here in the States we have ever had that tradition of TV for everybody. It's it's really always been sort of split into specific demographic slices or specific audiences. Like, you know, this is a kid's show and this is for adults and these are for 20-somethings. And I think that's what throws so many people, especially Americans, about Doctor Who is it contains all of those things and it can move from silly and slapstick to life or death serious and there is really something for everyone and it's this like really insane like melange of ingredients that shouldn't work together yet they do and that's you know part of the magic of it and i think it's the last remnant of that moment in time where the bbc really took its role as a public broadcaster in that way um and you know so the idea that there are kids watching, I think that is one of the reasons why the progressive politics are sort of front and center. The, um, you know, Rose Donna's daughter is a trans woman, a trans girl. I think she's she's 15. And um, Yasmin Finney is a trans actor. And I think it's quite a bold statement to make your first outing on Disney Plus for a global audience to have a trans character so front and center, not really shying away from the visibility of it and even, you know, factoring it into the plot. I think that's a really bold statement statement of intent from Russell T. Davies that I'm shocked he got away with, frankly. I mean, I applaud it. I, th I think it's incredible. And I just I just think it shows that he is not in the mood to pull any punches. That's a really good way of putting it. I mean, and I'll get into, you know, some of the aspects of, you know, the difference between the U.S. and the U.K. and the similarities on that issue. But but to put it in context, Russell Davies, from the very beginning, I mean, his career started off uh, in terms of American awareness, my personal awareness, but also a lot of American awareness, when Showtime adapted the British BBC series or the British series, um, uh, Queer as Folk, which was Russell Davies' like big straight into television production and being a showrunner. And it was a lauded show, absolutely broke through barriers in 1999. Then they did, a, you know, and then when they launched the U.S. adaption of that show in 2000, that was a show that actually was incredibly helpful for me in, in terms of representation and seeing something on screen. But uh, he always viewed himself as, I'm going to push these barriers, but I'm also going to make sure representation is clear and out in front. And season one, the 2005 reboot Doctor Who, with Chris Eccleston, one of the major companions, major characters introduced is Captain Jack Harkness, played by John Barrowman. And it was so unabashedly center stage. This is a pansexual, omnisexual character, even, even beyond the traditional binary descriptions or, you know, gay, bisexual, etc. It was he, he was even more and so out there and the commentary and the running jokes about it that, oh, Jack Harkness, there he is hitting on somebody else. Hit on, he'll hit on any alien that's hot. And but also made very clear his same sex relationships and interests. Um, and there it was, you know, accessible on the BBC as a show that was, you know, again, broadly meant for kids and adults. Uh, so I give him huge credit for doing that in 2005, which going back to that political era uh, in the US, huge tumultuous time. Marriage amendments passing year after year at, at the state level uh, to ban same-sex marriage. So it was, a, to, to go back in time to that point, it was on everybody's mind. It was very contentious. So for him to do that in Doctor Who, said a lot in 2005. So I can't say I'm surprised that he's doing it now. 
Uh, I said, no, I think he's following exactly who he is and saying, I'm going to take these issues and take them one step uh, further. You know, there was an interesting reaction to the regeneration, uh, the most recent regeneration. Jody Wigger regenerates into the, I don't know whether whether we're going to call this the, the next iterated doctor. Is he the 10th doctor? Point two. Is it going to be another regeneration? No, he, is, he, is, he is the 14th doctor. He's, he's, he is he's, the 14th doctor. He's, okay. he's the legitimate 14th and... Uh, Shudi Gatwa is the 15th doctor. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. And there was an interesting sentiment that came out there because there, again, everything, this is a particularly sensitive era, uh, especially with social media being so prominent. They said, well, he was the first one to regenerate into his own clothing. And and, and there were questions as to how uh, Russell Davies was going to handle gender and issues like that. There were even some assumptions being made that, oh, he's not going to handle it well uh, um, because he's probably stuck 20 years in the past. And I said, now, I, my, my sense was that he's going to come out and he could come out swinging and make a, a very, you know, make some bold statements, but also be very sensitive at the same time. Uh, and that's that's the vibe I got from the episode is that they, they had listened to trans people when both casting and writing the dialogue. It was it was like, yeah, we're, we're not going to make any assumptions based on what we think as writers, writers. Let's bring people in on this. And for me, I really, I really, I got a lot out of that myself. But I can't, I'm only speaking for myself as a gay man, not as a trans individual. So that would be, uh, you know, something to see the reaction as well. And then from the population, you know, at large, what do they, what, what do they think? And so I can imagine there's going to be conflict, but there was always conflict. There was conflict in 2005 with, with, with Jack Harkness. So that's something that's going to be there. And the question is, how well is it written? And how much does it come across on screen as being an enjoyable character that you're watching grow and experience the things that you're along the journey for? And that's what this episode did. I was delighted to be along for that journey. No, well said. It's interesting. I've read some some consternation in some quarters about the resolution where Donna has a line about, um, you know, it's something a male presenting Time Lord would never think of and how there is still something gender essentialist about that, how it's sort of saying, you know, women are better than men. But that's still saying that uh, like there is an essential difference. Um, and I think that here's the thing about However, those issues of gender are handled in this era of the show, I think if nothing else, it's very clear that Russell T. Davies' heart is in the right place. Mm-hmm. It's 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 sort of like what um what what Sylvia says to Donna in that in that lovely moment where she uses the wrong pronouns for Rose and she kind of gets a little flustered and she says, uh, you know, something to the effect of like, you know, she's trying to do it right. And from my understanding, that's all that most trans people are asking for. It's that not to never a, make mistakes. That, that that scene, because the the word use that jumped out, I, I went back and watched that scene two or three times in the beginning, where her grandmother says, "Oh, you know, you're, you you know, gorgeous," and and then to herself says, "I never use that word." With him referring to pre-transition, and, and which, which shows the, you know, the experience for the family members, the people in your life, uh, the notions of gender, the notion of changing pronouns, um, but that very idea of I never use that word gorgeous, partially because that was seen as a gendered term, you'd only use that uh, in, in a feminine sense, but also that maybe there wasn't something that was being given or shared that that idea of support and that you would say hey you are you are rocking it today you look amazing you know whatever it may be you know whether the the wording is considered masculine or feminine and the beautiful part about that was is that she was there now saying that to her granddaughter saying just 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 an idle comment of something nice to say to somebody that also helps boost them as a person, which I think is, is, is its own concept that we often forget to do just as people, which is to say, hey, uh, when somebody looks good or, or looks like they're feeling themselves, looks like they were feeling really good, mention it. All that does is build people up. Uh, and we forget to do that a lot in life. And seeing her have that moment and realize that, and then Donna Noble saying, you know, basically comforting her back was really a beautiful scene. And then their little interplay where it's like, well, you know, I forget the exact line, but it was, you know, like, uh, you know, it was referring to their relationship. And you realize with the context of the later episode that Donna and her mother certainly have issues, but that she didn't know that her mother was holding back so much because she had to. 
or felt she had to was that notion of protecting her. No, 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 no. There's no aliens here. There's nothing here. You're, you're, you're imagining all of this. None of this is happening. Oh God. Oh God. And you can see the panic rising because she's trying to protect her daughter's life. He was told she can't remember who she was. Otherwise she will die, which has created this huge barrier between them because they can't really fully interact because her mother knows the truth, knows the part that Donna has lost, which again, for the resolution of the episode was so beautiful because it allowed that Donna Noble regains her full self. Uh, uh, her mother doesn't have to worry about, you know, saying something that will trigger the memories and, and, and the comeback of the Time Lord. Uh, of course, the mother turns out to be right, you know. Uh, it's like, oh, well, if you get that daughter, something's going to happen. Well, of course, uh, that's, that, that, is, that is granted. But it was really, it, there, on so many levels, I felt that like Russell Davies wrote it. It applied on a different level. It wasn't just, let's, let's talk about it only from the perspective of gender, you know, it, let's talk about it in terms of relationships and what people do and what they hold back and why um, and how what we really want to be is more open with each other and how that leads to better relationships. And they got there at the end. And it was wonderful, even for the doctor, who that's his struggle through every iteration is he has a barrier between him and his companions, and then he loses somebody, and then he closes off for a while and then comes back. It's all about relationships. And maybe that's, you know, going back to what we were saying, why we felt like we were back at home. That's something that did feel missing, uh, 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 at least in the way it was portrayed in the recent seasons of Doctor Who. And it was winding down a little bit with Peter Capaldi's Doctor, that it's about the relationships. It's about the joy and the sadness that comes with companions and companionship. Um, and that right out the gate with this, I was like, yeah, no, we're back on that track again. And I was getting the feels as a result. Yeah. I mean, it's also like... Um this is kind of like the doctor in this the doctor's always trying to find out who he is when he regenerates. But this time also it's why is he the way he is this time? You know, it's not just that he regenerated is why did he regenerate in, back into a previous self? And so he's grappling with not just the identity of, I mean, it's sort of like he's grappling with stepping back into an old identity, you know, why, you know, cause it didn't seem to me like the 14th doctor is meant to has a different personality than the 10th doctor. It just seems like the 10th Doctor is also the 14th Doctor. So he's not really grappling with how to be the Doctor. It's more like, why am I the Doctor again? Which kind of just ties in with everyone else's, like the identity stuff that everyone else is kind of um, dealing with up front or subtly or the undertones that, you know, Russell T. Davies is, is kind of presenting in this. So the Doctor is at the forefront of all that. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, and we may get some other explanation. We still have two more specials with the 14th Doctor, but I assume... It's because the way he left Donna never quite sat right. The whole mind wipe without her consent thing, which Stephen Moffat, he issued a corrective for in um, Hellbent in series nine, where there was a question of whether Clara was going to be mind wiped. And the doctor turned it on himself and mind wiped his memories of Clara. And I think... This episode is sort of a continuation of that sort of re-examination of the ethics of not letting somebody choose their fate. The doctor wiped on his mind to save her life, but she didn't choose that. She may have chosen to die. And in this episode, in fact, she did. Sort of giving her the opportunity to choose that she was denied in 2008 in Journey's End. And that's what I meant uh, when I said this show feels like it's in conversation with the way the show had developed from 2008 onward. I love I, I love that notion about choice and agency that was, again, it's like, it's like th 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 this had a goofy, sort of a goofy monster that turned out to be really entertaining. But again, woven into the whole story you see from the very beginning was choice. The unit officers being, you know, taken over by the psychedelic son. What, 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 what a term! But it was about, yeah. What, what are your choices? What's your agency? And then also, what's your truth? And what are you going to manifest that as? Um, and that's always an issue that comes up, whether it's with gender, sexuality, ge general notions of freedom. Is where does choice and where does um, you know something essentialist come in? Like, are you this? Are you that? And the show ending with that idea of like, well, brilliantly using the text of her last, Donna's last words before she was mind wiped. First time, you know, binary, 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 binary. Uh, you know, that wasn't planned out, obviously, you know, right. <laughs> 13 years ago or so. Uh, that was uh, uh, just a perfect way to jump off into, wait a second, there are more options than we realize. That's why I think the controversy around 
So, which I think there's going to be a controversy around that line. You know, a male presenting doctor wouldn't wouldn't have thought about this because even I thought that in the moment. I said, yeah, that that, that does sound sort of essentialist, and it does. But I said, no, that that's a way of poking fun at the issue. It's a way of poking fun at the obsession over having all the answers and saying this is what a person is, in my opinion, without taking them into consideration. Uh, and then just said, like, hey, you know what? You never considered that option that maybe. I could just give it up. I could just right. let go of the power and the knowledge of being a time lord. Something that never occurred to you because maybe it's something you couldn't conceive of uh, in a million years and something that Jody Whittaker's doctor did sort of reconcile with in, in, in different ways as a result. So, you know, it, it was both saying, yes, a male presenting one didn't do it, but also none of your previous incarnations even thought about, could you just give it up? You just let go yeah. of it and let the energy pass through you. Um, I thought that was that was brilliant. And that is a huge choice, by the way, because imagine having the knowledge of a time lord, the essence of a time lord, and the power in you. Um, well, that's why we got the master. It was too, it's too much for some. It's too much for some people. And just saying, yeah, we're, we're going to let go. We're going to let go. Yeah. So ironically, that story point of letting go, David Tennant actually did that when he didn't want to regenerate and put the energy in his hand. He just... At least the tenth doctor didn't think to uh, tell that to Donna. Just yeah, maybe just let it go, like I did. I didn't run a regenerate. And it's interesting. I think that choosing to let go is going to factor in with how we say goodbye to this fourteenth doctor at the end of the third special. Yeah, I mean that makes sense because like this might be the uh, his classic line is I I didn't I don't want to go. I, I guess go. I'm, I'm thinking I'm thinking that this doctor will be like I'm ready to go is probably. You know, Something along those lines. Yeah, because similarly to how it seems like this is issuing a corrective to the end of Donna's story, one of the only ways that I think such a throwback nostalgia move of bringing back David Tennant and Donna to launch a new era of the show, I think the only way to make that justified and worthwhile is if the resolution is to pointedly do something different than I don't want to go saying something like no more nostalgia I'm ready to go you have to move on oh, you know that's a message that sometimes we all need to hear in life like that just like made gave me chills you know thank you for that like you know th th yeah. there are times you have to move past the nostalgia or the or, or move past the past that is really tough. Um, and that that episode when David Tennant regenerated, and, and that's part of the reason why he's my doctor, um, was that that emotion in the end of, I don't want to go. And you, you get that sense. Um, you got that sense that it was even David Tennant who knew he had to move on career-wise, but who also had grown to love this character. And in the interviews, and talked about it where, you know, it was the doctor moving on. It was the actor moving on. It was the production moving on, all this stuff. And yet, it had been so good. Why do you want to give that up? Um, I use the, the meme went around with that for the longest time, and I still use it, which is just you know the tenth side. So I'm like, I don't want to go. Uh, so I, I think the last time I used it was at the end of a really good vacation. But he asked, "Hey, how's the vacation going?" And I sent that. It's like I don't want to go, you know. And that's and that sort of became this you know thing that I always associated with that doctor. And now, yeah, this is going to be. Why is his face back? That's probably going to be one of the major changes, James. I think you're, you're right on with that. And it's really cool with a lot of cool potential for what they could do in the next two episodes. Yeah, I mean, this has happened before. I mean, we, well, it's not sort of happened before. It's happened before in the sense that Peter Capaldi appeared in the Roman episode, and then he got Peter Capaldi's <laughs> yeah. face. And, you know, well, that, I, I always joke that's because there are only actually like 15 actors in England um, because they all you know, <laughs> somehow have the same faces, all you know, cycle around and around and around. And they just said, yeah, you know what we're going to do? Either we're not either we're not going to hire this person or we're going to come up with a reason and just, yep, it's another face. Um, yeah. and, and I think it's it's that just makes it more of the fun part, which, um, you know, and, and going into the fun part, as I want, you know, Josh's input on this one is when Donna and the doctor are trying to disable the dagger drive of the Meeps vessel. They went so overboard with the random terminology. Yes. And you could tell they're just like, no, we're going to go full in on this. We're going to say every nonsense word for every little switch and button we're going to press. We're going to push it so far over the top that you have to laugh at it. You know, yes. it, it, yeah. it's not even it's not even, uh, you know, it's not like the Star Trek attempt to make the positronic inverter make sense or something like that. They were just going to say we're going to use every single conceivable word and flip every button. We're done. We're going to save the day and we're going to laugh about it. Um, and I think that was a good way of also breaking the ice of telling you where 
the show is, you know, that both it takes itself seriously, but doesn't take itself seriously. And that they're not going to take the time to be like, yes, we're going to explain scientifically every reason for how a dagger drive works. Right. Well, I also thought it was a good way to sort of balance out a scene where you think Donna's about to die. Like as a viewer, like, you know, we know there's two more specials, but if you're in the moment of the show, Donna has a minute left to live. Um, and yeah. so also like the divide in the room sort of recreates um, the way that the 10th doctor gave his life for Wilford and, you know, being separated. But but they had fun. They were having fun in their last few minutes together as a viewer. So I thought think that it was it was a nice way to kind of encapsulate that moment it, or, or sort of undercut the seriousness that, you know, at any moment, Donna's just chosen to die. And after she saves the day, she's going to die. But they're having fun together. They're, they're having adventures together again. And that's also one of the things about Doctor Who, and in particular, Russell T. Davies' Doctor Who, that I think is kind of of a piece with the other stories he's written. He's not interested in the technobabble of it all. He's interested in the relationships and the emotion. So whatever, you know, reverse the polarity of the neutron flow bit of, of techie business he needs to get him there, it's all about making something feel emotionally satisfying and emotionally fulfilling and emotionally correct. And I think he crafts resolutions that have enough scaffolding to make a kind of emotional sense, and you're not really supposed to break it down with a microscope. That's how he approaches Doctor Who. It's about what feels right. It's all made up science anyway, so, like, what's it matter? I mean, the doctor is a magical being anyway. So like, it's, yeah. it's a sort of like, he's, a, he's really a, like a fantasy character, but he's grounded in a science fiction show. You know, the doctor can think of, create, or make anything happen. So the, the technology or science behind it doesn't really need to make sense as long as the story points are being hit. So, I mean, also they have the, de- the deus ex machina of the, of the sonic screwdriver that keeps evolving over time to do many things yeah, that... This time was you know, but, it, but, but portable shield. Yeah, yeah, it puts up shields now, which is fine. I mean, because I don't get... I mean, you could say like, oh, it's convenient that he's using the sonic screwdriver, but it's a story point to get the doctor and whoever else is with him to the next important part of the story. And let's be honest, a lot of that has to do with what the budget of the BBC is season to season going all the way back to 64 you know and now they want to show off that they have a little bit more and finally that's something about this episode is it felt like the bbc was no longer being like fine we'll let you make the show just do it on 10 cents like there was a little bit more you know from, from, from everything from the filming to the general quality, I was like, okay, yeah, it's there. And were, were the aliens, were the were the, uh, were the wrath, did they look cheesy? Yes, because that's what this is. It's cheesy. It's meant to be cheesy. And it took that on its own of giving us the meep, you know, which is literally a term, like, I forget which friend of mine uses that term for, like, you know, your cute little things. So it was literally like the term for cute little things, then, oh, not so cute anymore, right after the psychedelic sun. I loved that. And I loved that it was like, Good production value, but also still the cheesy factor that we have come to know and love with Doctor Who. It's not trying. It's not trying to be pretentious. Yeah, that was my, and frankly, still is a little my biggest fear about the Disney Plus of it all, and also you know this whole innovation of the Hooniverse, um, which seems like it, well, not seems like it is a Marvel-like attempt to create a shared universe between like the flagship show of Doctor Who proper and what I can only imagine are going to be several other spinoff series to come. I'm concerned that it's going to lose that kind of scrappy, quirky, homemade feel that, I mean, arguably you could say the new series had, had sort of already lost. But I think in proportion to what is standard fare of the time, and maybe I just answered my own question. Like, I think uh, maybe it's still sort of in proportion to what an audience's expectation of a large sci-fi franchise on a streaming platform is. Um, I mean, I don't think you should use, I never think you should just use money to use money. And I think they did it. I mean, like John said, I, you know, like the Muppet nature of the, uh, of the insect creatures. I mean, those insect creatures look like they stepped out of Rick and Morty and out of a Henson, Henson shop. Yeah. And that's fine because I'm like, yeah, they, they're fine. But I mean, listen, I'm going to say like the, the, the Jodie Whittaker era of the doctor, I don't think was as strong as some other errors. However, I enjoyed her as the doctor, but I felt like their budget constraints really must have taken away with some of the grandness. I think to miss some of the grandness that they're obviously showing that they, 
it's a return to form now because look at this special. We we can show greatness again because you would never they don't have the they would never have had the budget you know like to do that in the last few years of Doctor Who, you know with Thirteenth Doctor. Uh, so I think there is something to be said like if the budget gets too low for even though this this show evolved out of a low budget, I think it it can hurt it in some ways or or at least like how you use money should be very thought out because Doctor Who should have some moments where like you're in the wonder of the of the universe or the the <clears throat> actual threat of the aliens and when they cut the budget prior to this this reboot um I, I think they lost some opportunities for that too so you know i, I share your concern josh like i hope they don't go crazy with the money but i think they so far should they're going to have to without. worry about disney plus going crazy with the money now a year ago uh before they brought bob Iger back to disney I think it was the idea was throw money at the streaming platforms, and that's when the Doctor Who agreement was was basically signed. But there, there, the danger actually is that they might come, you know, roll back everything that they're going to spend. They're cutting their budgets massively, and the number of shows they plan on coming out with is being culled day by day. I mean, the industry is already feeling it. But the, the question is, how, how do you use the money? I think that there's like there, there's the money on one side as 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 one tangible representative of how much your studio or the BBC supports you. And then there is the less tangible forms of support that you can tell a show is getting or not getting. The Jodie Whittaker era, uh, writing aside, clearly did not have the support and enthusiasm from the BBC. And you can just tell that in the production in general. It, it, you know, and, and I, what I imagine in my own head is that even the camera crews just sort of felt like they were going through the motions because there wasn't this great push for it. It was like, yeah, we're going to do this and we're going to do this show and almost reluctantly do it. And that's sort of sad to get that vibe through a show. But I've seen it happen with other shows too when the studios just aren't giving it that kind of support. And show owners can do amazing things on a shoestring budget. But if they don't have that intangible emotional support from the studio, from the production team they're working with, you're, you're going to see it in the show. And I suspect that's what had happened largely. Also, the idea of tossing out eight episodes every two years and not knowing when something is going to happen. And I know that's BBC, their budget and their way of making shows is a little bit different, but to so split it up, it loses momentum. And as American viewers are experiencing now, you lose that momentum with, with, with a show, you begin to lose your connection with it. Well, it happened, that started happening with the Cavaldi era before even. Yeah, like yeah. The, the, the gaps in between like the wrap-up of his thing yeah. was like... It, it, it was two years in all but name. They'd be like, oh, well, technically by the numbers, it's not. It's like, no, that was that was like... 20 months between episodes and you're going to lose the feel and streaming TV is big on that by the way like especially with the pandemic and the strikes and everything else we want to see these gaps in production but if you're going to move away from a model that has 20 some odd episodes of a TV show per year particularly to a US audience and then you're going to shrink it down to 8 to 12 episodes and then you're going to get that maybe every other year how do you even remember what it is you just watched how are you going to feel what you felt before we're connecting with this because we're, we're deliberately throwing ourselves back into it. This is a special. There's a lot riding on it. But for an everyday show, you can't just be constantly, you know, running out the clock and be like, ah, oh, they'll remember it. They'll reconnect with it. No, we won't. We're, gonna, we're going to forget. We're going to lose that, that thread that bound us to, to the show. So the BBC needs to take that into consideration and say, all right, maybe we don't have to spend a fortune on the show. We don't need huge special effects every episode. But we need to commit to making the show in a reasonable time frame. Well, well, as somebody who has been reading Doctor Who magazine and Russell T. Davies updates religiously, he is very concerned that the show be on regularly and consistently. And right now they are shooting. Shooty Got was second season. And Shooty Got was second season isn't going to air until spring of 2025. So they are ahead of the curve. Um, and again, I am almost certain, well, I am certain, I just don't know what they are, that there are going to be spin-off shows to kind of fill in the the space between uh, the main show. Um, well, that, I mean, that was, um, I mean, Russell T. Davies, well, I mean, I know, I can see the concern with the whole MCU of it because I, I've spoken on <laughs> Secret Origins many times about, I think it was just too much too fast. Um, but but remember, Russell T. Davies also, in like, he kicked off the MCU-ation of Doctor Who with Torchwood and the Sarah Jane Chronicles. I, I think yeah. it was just like, I hope in the time he's been away from the Whoverse, I mean, I know he's done other things and stuff, but reading that book which that that thick tome that you and i have read josh like of how he met, was a showrunner and the amount of writing and scripts and late nights and turn-ins and stuff i mean oh the writer's tale I, yeah the writer's tale i've I mean, read it three like, times 
Yeah, that thing is like a heroic journey that yeah. he did to to keep all that going, and it, it's it's sort of like. Um, I think when Russell T. Davies stepped away is when Torchwood kind of fell apart and Sarah Jane Chronicles fell apart. And I, I think the spinoffs can work because he's he's innovative, he's imaginative, he has ideas. But it's it's more so the same problem with Doctor Who. Can you are you able to step back and just be a producer of all these things when you or can you choose good people? And uh, that's always that was always a thing. Can, can the individual who creates all this oversee it all, or can they pick the right people to keep the legacy going? And I guess we're going to have to see because he did this once before and it was great when he was on top of it. And then when he stepped away, it kind of fizzled out. Speaking of spinoffs, I've heard rumblings about a unit spinoff. And I think you can see the prominence of the scientific advisor that they introduced in this show, uh, whose name's escaping me at the moment, unfortunately. And um, we know from the trailers that Kate Lethbridge-Stewart is returning because unfortunately, Torchwood isn't going to come back because of the issues with John Barrowman, the revelations about his onset behavior. I don't think he will be returning to the Doctor Who universe. So I think a unit show is a way to sort of do that kind of show, which I mean, like, let's be frank, like, Torchwood was always sort of a reinvention of unit for the 21st century anyway. So it kind of makes sense that the inheritor of that space would be a show about unit. And it seems like from what I've been reading, oh, well, I don't want to get into, into rumors and spoilers and stuff. Not that kind of podcast. Uh, on that note, though, do we have any predictions for the upcoming specials? In particular, any thoughts about who the mysterious big bad villain is that the meep refers to, the boss? Yeah, I mean, I want to say it's going to be the master just because the way the meep said, you know, referred to like beings with two hearts, you know, just gave me the vibe of it could be the master. Uh, and that's just and that's just one guess. I, I, I wouldn't say I have like. It's a 90% chance. It's not Vegas odds on this. But I'm thinking like, mm, there's there's my guess is it's the master, but it could be any number of other uh, villains we're familiar with. But they would isn't I, it somebody a, who knows the doctor. Isn't it like, well, what's Neil Patrick Harris's character? He's Isn't he, I thought he was the architect of these specials. Well, he's, maybe he's not. Maybe it's a red hair. I, I haven't read anything about that, except that it was only a few days ago that it came across the, you know, like the, just a news article that, oh, he's in it. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, because I, I was envisioning like, you know, because what you said earlier, Josh, about why David Tennant's doctor, the 10th doctor regenerated the 14th doctor because of the unfinished business with Donna Noble made sense to me. But I also was originally thinking it's like, it's something to do with, was it the toy maker? Is that the character he's playing? Yeah, yeah, the toy I maker. I thought it was like, this is some kind of machination of the toy maker, like making him regenerate into the previous form for some amusement of whatever this character Neil Patrick Harris is playing that we'll learn about. Like, I almost thought, like, because I know nothing about the toy maker, except what I would assume the, the character's name implies is like he makes toys or brings inanimate objects to life. Yeah, whatever. I know he's a previous villain from the early era as a doctor. So I was like wondering if like the regeneration was also engineered by him. So like, I had a lot of thoughts, but I just, I know like the toy maker is supposed to show up, but I, I didn't even think, John, that maybe like there was someone behind the toy maker. I agree. I think the boss is probably the toy maker, and I think the toy maker has something to do with the regeneration. But I also think the master might factor in because Donna had a very conspicuous line. It was something along the lines of she never trusts anyone with a goatee, and the master is very famous for having a goatee. And I remember the line kind of stood out to me because it's like, oh, that's good. Yeah. So that's so good. I I have a feeling the master might show up. But again, like you, John, I don't think he's necessarily they are necessarily the boss because it just seems it would it would be a little too obvious. And also because we just got so much master from the previous season with the timeless child and the Rasputin master of it all and everything. It's like, you know, we just had a huge finale that revolved around the master. And I don't think that. Russell T. Davies would repeat that so soon. It would be more fun if it was a bit of a fake out. You know, we, we think it's the master, the breadcrumbs yeah. are dropped, and then you see, oh, it, he was distracting us from what was in the other hand, you know, and that there's, you know, somebody right. else. And it was just toy maker, something, something. But I, you know, it, my, my expectations are that it's going to be Russell Davies. I haven't been disappointed with a show of his uh, since I can remember. I mean, I, I think the most. It was another show I saw recently. I can't remember the name of it. Then when it was years and years, it was really good. You know, and, and again, all the way back to Queer as Folk, he's always been really, really good and occasionally drops the ball at some point or another, like any showrunner. I think there's this you know, sense that we as viewers are entitled to flawless 
episode after flawless episode. It's like, we are entitled to nothing. We are entitled like, to nothing. No, We're lucky you know, for what we get. TV and how difficult it is just to do the thing and that, you know, you're not going to know what's going to connect with every viewer. And, uh, and on that quick note, I, I, I did read some of the IMDb reviews uh, from last night. And some of the funniest ones were like, it's like, oh, I felt like it did. It was too cheesy. And I, I really loved when Christopher Eccleston started off. And that, I'm like, can you not remember your own history? That was the cheesiest beginning with the mannequins, you know, and everything else. That That is that is the highest level of cheese. Um, but, but Doctor Who, like we said, should have some cheesiness to it. It should. Like I said, my, I, the... The bug aliens from the Henson Studio thing. I mean, <laughs> I'm like, this is a little cheesy, but you know what? This is like, I mean, not that it's not for me because I, I appreciate like puppeteering and and sort of like that kind of alien look. But I'm saying, yeah, but this yeah. is also like some of the cheesiness that appeals to the younger crowd we spoke of. And I mean, uh, it's great. I mean, and the know. psychedelic sun, they were just a bunch of like friendly little fluffy things. And then the psychedelic sun happened and they're all crazy and bloodlust thirsty. Like, yeah. Okay. I thought it was a little much when he pulls out the wig and does the cord. I was like, I don't know if we needed the wig. It was an interesting choice, but I liked the scene. I just was like, is is the I don't know about the wig, but I'm like, but but I'm like, you know what? That's just for a kid. Maybe this is showing how zany the ten, like the fourteenth Doctor is. This is like zaniness and and comedy and props. Do you know the only reason why I didn't have a problem with it? Tom Baker did the exact same thing in a story called The Stones of Blood. Oh, well, then I'm out of place because I'm just not caught up in my <laughs> history. So I, I stand corrected. There's a precedent for it. Mm-hmm. I, I was going, I was like, this it. is kind of an odd, I was just kind of an odd move to uh, sort of go into like change a costume change in the middle of a dramatic scene. But I'm like, I'm going to go with it, but it may not be for me. That's I have all. To like, wonder, a, it, I have to wonder if it was an intentional reference or not. I feel like it's it's so specific and so kind of oddball that it's it's oh, it's got to be. There might be something we're missing about the Shadow Proclamation. Maybe. You know. So I loved him invoking that because you, you'll never entirely know what the shadow proclamation is and what timelines it exists in. But it, but he's referred to it in the future, yeah. you know, at all kinds of things. He's like, "Ooh, the shadow proclamation," and that was when the uh, the, the 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 wrath just like like okay, yo, nope, we're 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 gonna listen up here. Uh, uh, I love that. That that was like yeah. When the doc the doctor's ultimate power is very often knowing how to game the rules, use the rules, and his presence or their presence is just brilliant. And that and that was fun. I thought it was a little bit hokey, but you know what? That's that's what it's all about. That's, right. That's what so much of uh, this is. You do wonder like why did he have it on him this time? <laughs> because his pockets are bigger on the inside. That's fair. That's fair. God, we could all use that. Yeah. Bag of yeah. holding. But again, anything hokey is kind of like, I, if I bump up against it, I'm like, well, if a six or eight year old's watching this, that's that's great. Yeah. You know, that's great. I mean, you know, I, I can't get back into that space and maybe I, it would be better if I could. But like, you know, this is not this is not this part of the show or this um, edition is, is not meant to speak to me of you as a viewer. It's meant to speak to somebody else as a viewer, someone younger who's like enjoying the, the antics. That that, you know, James, you, you'd put together a really great the 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 interview you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a couple of months ago. Wow, was it that long ago? Thundercats. And yeah. uh, what I had forgotten about that show was that it was created to market toys. In order to get on the air, it had to agree to have a certain amount of like moral educational content. It was more than like the moral, like, like you know, like, like a good story uh, and everything else. And um, you know, that interview with Larry Kenny was both brilliant, but also he was the one who brought that up and was like, yeah, it had to have that. And when I was doing the research for that, I said, yeah, I watched these episodes, but every episode had this like moral to the story. It was meant to have that part for kids, something that specifically uh, fulfilled its purpose. And like you said, that back in the 60s with, with, with Doctor Who, you know, it had BBC had a, you know, sort of a mission it was trying to uh, trying to do. And they and, and by the way, the episode I rewatched with Thundercats had this very specific thing about disabilities. And if, if anybody was going to complain about the concept of being woke now, watch an episode of Thundercats and how much they drilled into you not to discriminate that somebody with a disability is absolutely as uh, as valid as everybody else and don't you dare say otherwise. I mean, it was so intense. I was like, no, that there was a mission to it. And we forget that that's a lot of our childhood shows. And if that's going to be in the mix here for Doctor Who, uh, yeah, it's going to have cheesy moments. It's going to have over-the-top sort of moralizing occasionally. And it's definitely going to have those like, yeah, he pulls a wig out of his pocket because why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not? 
And also Doctor Who, as we've, as we've learned, especially in the modern era, but I think even like, and Josh, you could speak to this better than I, I probably can because you rewatched the, whatever is available to rewatch. It evolves with the time. Yeah. Like it makes its corrections. It makes its within show corrections, especially with this, as we've talked about in this episode, is like correcting miss errors in writing of the time of autonomy and, and, and asking permission and all those things, but it's self-correcting and then it's correcting going forward. And that's the nature of Doctor Who. I mean, Doctor Who is a... It's a futurist type of thing. Like we're going into the future with this and we're going to make corrections along the way. And we'll call ourselves out when, when we need to about things that we want to address that we made a misstep in and we're going to do better going forward. Well said. Very well said. All right, my friends, any closing thoughts on the Star Beast or hopes for what's to come for us in the next few weeks? My God, I can't believe we have three new episodes coming if you count the Christmas special. Oh, yeah in a month and i haven't been this excited about about doctor who in quite some time it feels good but uh closing thoughts well i'm just i'm i'm equally as excited and i haven't i haven't felt that in in a long time as well and going back many many years um i think they're doing a great job i'm excited to see what comes and i really think this is gonna herald a new era for doctor who because my my gut's telling me he's also preparing for how to set uh, Russell Davies that is, is to set Doctor Who for the years to come in terms of vibe and whoever uh, takes over the show. Um, but like I say about, it, I think all the things we review together, my 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 hope for anything is just that we all have fun watching it, and I'm really optimistic about that part. I think you're exactly right. I think that Russell T Davies is setting up the show for the future for the long haul, and I think it's very conspicuous. Again, I. I kind of alluded to this earlier, but I think this sort of um, nostalgia run around the track is sort of a prelude to clearing the table and setting it for something completely new, a clean slate. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's also something that's really important that maybe they didn't quite get to before was the idea that sometimes you do need to visit the past in order to close that door and move on and that's and that's what this maybe that's what this is really doing for 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 the show and for us as viewers uh which we didn't necessarily get between some of the previous regenerations um if there was going to be a showrunner change or something like that we just sort of were jolted into something that maybe didn't uh connect in the same way and now it's gonna you know it's gonna get us there yeah yeah, I agree. I'm excited for the future of Doctor Who. I mean, I'm always excited for Doctor Doctor Who, new Doctor Who to watch it. Because, uh, you know, I, as I've said many times, I'm, I'm also just interested in show me something new or show me to do something old, do some do something with something old and give me a new spin. You know, this is probably not a popular thing, but I know some of the Jodie Whittaker stuff was not always received well. Um, some of the places he went with the master and the previous Doctor Who regenerations that you know, the doctor didn't know about. I was like, I'm always like, well, at least this is something interesting. It's something I hadn't, I don't know if I agree with it, but I'm, at least it's something different. I always like that with writers, especially with a character who's been around for 60 years. I mean, I haven't been a fan of comic books, you know, like it, seeing the same Batman story over and over and over and over again. Like, I don't always agree with the Batman story you showed me, but at least take a chance, please. Because like, we need to, we need to, it's the only way we're going to get to new stuff. So I hope whatever we're going to see is new and exciting. And uh, I just want to say like, um, the change of the meat from the the cute meep to the evil meep. I, I really like that. I like that, that change because the evil meep was really evil looking compared to how it started. So yeah. I applaud the uh, the CGI and the puppet makers on the meep because uh, that was well done. But uh, in terms of going forward, I'm I'm open to whatever they want to they want to show me with Doctor Who. No, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Well, my friends, thank you for helping to inaugurate this rubbish TARDIS. Um, James, is there a spot to park it in the back of the store? Yes, either in the back of the store or you can you know, park it in the basement of the of main condition or, uh, okay. or right next to Hinks and right next to Hinks in the Hink parking lot. Yeah, right. Let's try to reconvene next week for Wild Blue Yonder, which I believe is the title of the second special. I don't yet have a sign off for this show, but um, that'll do. Thank you.